0: Here's another inspiring speech, recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thank you very much for the kind introduction, Dennis, and for nailing my surname. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and to pay my respect to Elders, past and present. I particularly want to acknowledge Indigenous women. At an International Women's Day event in March of this year, Miranda Tapsell, the brilliant actress you might know from the film The Sapphire, said, I am a woman too. Her words remind us how often Indigenous women's stories are not being told as part of the national conversation on gender inequality. In fact, the past few months have been a bit of a shake-up for gender inequality in this nation. In June of last year, allegations emerged that Justice Hayden, one of Australia's most powerful men, had assaulted six associates during his decade on the bench. The High Court apologised to those six women. But for so many of us who've worked in the legal profession, where harassment was and frankly remains rampant, the allegations were not altogether surprising. And then came Brittany Higgins' brave allegations of a rape in Parliament House, the very institution where our laws are made. And if the ground hadn't been shaken for so many men and women reading and watching in shock, things got worse when our Attorney-General was accused of an historical rape. Now this may seem like a strange place to begin my talk today. I came here to rebuild your faith in the law rather than to knock it perhaps further down. Because despite all this recent uproar about gender inequality, gender inequality is not a new problem in this country or overseas. Yet I do believe it's time to look for some new solutions and to revisit some old ones and see if we can make them work better. And to ask ourselves if we do this, can we achieve gender equality in a generation? Think about that for a moment. Gender equality in a generation. Who thinks that's an ambitious goal? Well, as the mother of two girls under the age of seven, gender equality in a generation is a must. But it is an ambitious target because the World Economic Forum has told us that at the current rate of progress, we are well over 100 years away from parity. But before we look at the law as a potential solution, let's see how things are faring. How does it look the picture of gender equality. And let's start with the global picture. So in 1891, in New Zealand was the first nation to guarantee women their right to vote. And today women can vote in every single country around the world, with Saudi Arabia joining the ranks in 2015. In 1900, there was not a single woman Member of Parliament. In 2013, the World Bank reported that 21.77% of parliamentarians are women. But Think about that for a moment. We're celebrating a situation where for every one woman, there's four men. We'll get to the Australian picture in a minute, but just so you know where we stand. In our House of Representatives, 31% are women currently. So that's less than one in three. In 2017, the One campaign reported that 130 million girls miss out on attending school every single day of the year. And while that's 130 million girls too many, we are actually closing the gender gap when it comes to education. And in fact, women are surpassing men in tertiary enrollment. And yet COVID-19 shows us how quickly those gains can be lost. Just last year, 1.6 billion learners in 199 countries, including this one, Were affected by school closures. Women's labour force participation still lags behind men's around 50% compared to 76% and this is not just about the impact of women's lower participation on productivity, think about women's lack of economic security from the minute they enter the workforce to the minute they leave. And in rich nations like our own while 70% of women who are sexually active have access to some form of contraception In Africa that's just 28%. So think about the unplanned pregnancies and the impact that has on girls' schooling and women's access to universities and work. Not to mention the right of women and girls to control what happens to their bodies in the first place. It is not all gloom and doom. Last year Mumbai changed its traffic lights to be a bit more gender inclusive. And I'll leave you to mull over what difference you think that might make. So that's the global picture, but how do things look back home? How does Australia fare when it comes to gender equality? Well, Australia fell from a rank of 15th in 2006 to 44th in 2020 from the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index. This is the same institution telling us we're well over a century away from parity. So that's Lao in 43rd and Australia in 44th. Just a few weeks ago, at the end of March, the World Economic Forum released its 2021 data. Sadly, Australia fell to a rank of 50th, described as being sandwiched between Suriname and Georgia. Georgia, not the state in the US, Georgia, the country in Central Asia. And this is certainly not where we want to be. Now, it may come as no surprise to many in the room that Australia ranks behind Iceland, Finland, Norway and Sweden, all of whom took the top four in 2020. But our rank of 50th puts us behind New Zealand, who moved up from six and bumped its way into top four. It puts us behind the Philippines in 17th. Albania, 25th. Burundi, 25th. Zimbabwe in 47th. Now, I'm sure that many women in this room would prefer to be a woman in Australia than many of those other higher ranked countries. Yet according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Australia is the 10th richest country in the world based on GDP per capita and yet we rank behind most of the other top 30 richest countries. What that means is that we fare particularly badly on gender equality when compared to countries with the same level of economic development as our own. So the obvious question we need to be asking ourselves is what are we doing wrong? Where do our problems lie? Well, women's lack of participation in politics is a major part of the problem, and sadly that may not be a situation changing in a hurry, given how unappealing a career in politics can be for women in this country. According to a survey by YouGov and Plan International, 73% of women aged 18 to 21 do not believe that women in politics in Australia are treated equally to men. That's eight in 10 of women in the slightly higher age bracket, 22 to 25. So 8 in 10 of the women who make up the current and future potential of women in politics don't believe that Australian women in politics are getting a fair go. How else are we getting it wrong? Well, the Australian Bureau of Statistics reported in 2017 that 1 in 5 Australian women will experience sexual violence in their lifetime. So for every table of 5 women out there, that's 1 of you. Meanwhile the Workplace Gender Equality Agency has reported that Australian women earn 21% less than men for the same work. Put another way, the the Australian Human Rights Commission have told us that Australian women need to work an extra 56 days a year to earn the same pay as men for doing the same work. An extra 56 days a year. So the obvious question we need to be asking ourselves is what can we do about this? And what do we need to be asking our leadership? So I'm going to ask you to join with me, perhaps bear with me, as I explore the law as an underexplored solution. I'm an avid lover of the law. I made a barrister's briefcase out of cardboard for a year six library project. (laughs) So I don't really need convincing that part of the solution to gender inequality lies with the law. But with the law so often failing Australian women, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you need more convincing. So maybe this story will help. Just under two years ago, what feels like a lot longer ago, given our current ban on international travel, I was in Jakarta meeting with women's rights activists. And I met with one such activist who's been fighting for change in Indonesia for decades. Let's call her Malati. Now, I sat in Malati's office, and over the relentless noise of Jakarta traffic streaming through the window, Malati said to me, Ramona, Indonesia's law on domestic violence isn't working. The law provides a lower penalty where the woman who accuses a man of rape happens to be his wife. And what's more, many of the forms of violence Indonesian women experience are not captured by the law. Now, according to UNFPA, 4 in 10 Indonesian women will experience sexual psychological, economic or physical violence in their lifetime. And that was one in six just the year prior to that study. Now, we know statistics are murky in this area, but let me tell you, those statistics are not that far from our own. But what was really interesting is Malati turned to me and she said, Ramona, you've been to so many countries around the world. Surely there are other countries near us, like the Philippines, have better laws that we can learn from. And Malati's right. Countries need to look to their neighbours for good practice. And for a kick in the butt, we're a competitive lot in this country. Surely our rank of 50th must motivate change on some level. Malati's frustration with the law was so real, but it's not unique. I spent a decade working in civil society before joining the University of Technology, Sydney. And I've met with countless women who've told me stories about how the law fails them. Women who live in the floating villages of Cambodia who have this real consciousness of their reproductive rights but are trying to access reproductive health care in hospitals that are unregulated and two doctors serve thousands. Women who live in the slums of Rio de Janeiro and other parts of Brazil whose partners are drug dealers so they can't turn to the law or law enforcement when they're suffering domestic violence at home. Or young women in Liberia who are being forced into providing sex for better grades at university who cannot turn to law enforcement, let alone university management. But it's really important to remember that this is not a third world problem and it strikes me how often people say to me, oh that's different, Australia's a different nation. Western democracies do not have discrimination in our books and that's gender equality experts who say that too. So now I want to talk through two examples of Australian laws and I do this to show you we do have discrimination in our books but I also do this so we can start to have a conversation about how we need to legislate differently if we're actually going to do something about gender inequality in this country. I'm going to talk a little bit about paid parental leave. So unpaid leave was introduced into industrial awards in Australia around the 1970s And then in 1999, the then Australian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, what we now call the Australian Human Rights Commission, issued the first ever report into pregnancy and pregnancy-related discrimination. And they found that lack of access to maternity leave was affecting the decisions of families about whether to have children and how many. But this to me really struck me, that one of the biggest findings of the report was the fact that lack of access to maternity leave was shaping family sizes rather than the violation of the rights of women in the first place. Australia was well behind the times. Remember, I'm still talking about unpaid parental leave. And we've been incredibly slow to introduce paid parental leave. So the average number of weeks of paid leave among countries that make up the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, now this is the 37 countries that are sometimes called the Club of Rich, that includes Australia. So the average number of weeks in 1970 was 17 weeks. Australia only introduced paid maternity leave in a law that came into force in 2010. And I'll start talking about that in a little minute. The average number of paid weeks of maternity leave among OECD countries in 1990 was 40 weeks and it increased to an incredible 51 weeks in 2018. 51. Now, that's incredibly high for an average. It's pulled up by Slovakia, Finland and Hungary, all of whom offer three years paid leave. But putting aside the question of how many weeks of leave is enough, which is by no means an insignificant question, let's look at why Australia's Paid Parental Leave Act receives a less-than-perfect score. Now, this comes from the Gender Legislative Index that I created at the University of Technology Sydney to score legislation for its gender responsiveness. So that's where we want to head. We want to get to the dark green, which means we've got gender-responsive laws, that are meeting international standards. And you can see here we've got a lot of orange. Because there's a lot of evaluators saying we're only partly meeting international standards. And in my view there's one main reason why this law receives a less than perfect score. The law defines the primary carer as mostly mothers. So this is the goal from Australia's Paid Parental Leave Act. The object of paid parental leave is to provide financial support to primary carers mainly birth mothers, of newborn and newly adopted children, to allow those carers to take some time off work, to enhance the health and development of mothers and children, to encourage women to continue to participate in the workforce and to promote equality between men and women and the balance between work and family life. And you can see why we failed on that last front. And here's some statistics to show you why. In 2017, according to the Australian Institute of Family Studies, 95% of primary carers were mothers, which means only one in 20 men are putting up their hands to be the primary carer. There's been a slight improvement. According to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, 6.5% of primary carers were men from 2019 to 2020. So now we're looking at around one in 15. Men are not excluded from the Paid Parental Leave Act from accessing parental leave. They can become a secondary claimant but only after the primary carer transfers it to them and only after they get through the loopholes that entails. You see, paid parental leave in Australia is income tested and it's based on the income of who? On the mothers. And so if you have a high income earning mother, she's not entitled to paid parental leave, so she has nothing to transfer to her partner, no matter how low his income may be. Parliamentary council, draft our law. So when a minister tables a motion for a bill, it's the legal drafters who sit behind the scenes and turn that policy into legalese. You have to wonder, what was on the men, perhaps, and women sitting at the table when they decided to draft into Australian law that primary carers would be mostly mothers? Was this a highly debated over provision? Or did it naturally come to the minds of the men and women as they put pen to paper? In this country, Fathers and partners are also entitled to leave in the Dad and Partner Pay Act that came into force in 2012. It entitles them to two weeks' leave, not much. The OECD average in 2018 was 8.4 weeks for so-called dad pay. We get two in this country. But that does put us ahead of some other countries like the UK that also offers two weeks but at a reduced rate. But at the end of the day, what do we have? We have 18 weeks of paid leave for primary carers and then two weeks for dads and partners. So no wonder 95% of primary carers are mothers. Because what does this law tell the fathers who want to put their hands up to be the primary carer when their wives weren't turned to work, or their partners return to work? And what does it say to the mothers who want to go back to work and leave their child in the care of a partner? Last year, the law was amended and it has introduced some more flexibility and it may see more fathers take leave but the same amendments reduce the amount of leave left for mothers. So the impact on gender equality really remains to be seen, which has led to some academics saying this country needs compulsory paternity leave. Now that may seem like a legal revolution for Australia, but it's actually the global solution, because men around the world are not taking leave. So in 2017, the European Commission issued a proposal for a directive for 10 days obligatory paternity leave. So if Australia is serious about doing something about this problem, we need to look beyond our borders. Because even the countries that are the poorer performers here are doing better. Ireland's gone from zero weeks in 2014 to two at a reduced rate, and Spain's already gone from two to four. Because the data shows us that men will take leave. Men will take paternity leave if it is, first of all, generous. Second of all, flexible. And third, if parental leave is provided equally to both partners and when it cannot be transferred between them. And this comes from an excellent report by Per Capita, which I highly recommend for anyone interested in gender equality in this nation. Law reform in this direction may see women return to work at the same levels and for the same rate of pay and hours as before becoming a mother, and the economic penalty on women vastly reduced. In fact, an equity economic study has recommended that the Australian government provides 12 months of paid parental leave to be equally shared between both partners. Now, we've just had the budget statement. You might be thinking, 12 months? How can we afford that? But it's not only affordable, but it will make us money. $116 billion, to be precise, or 2.9% of GDP by 2050. And that's just from the estimated increased productivity from women returning to work. So it's not about trying to be Sweden, which I think may be so far removed from the realities of Australia, but it's about amending our laws and eradicating the gender discrimination facing both men and women that's built into our law at the moment. Although for anyone who's interested, Sweden offers 480 days of leave, 60 of which are reserved for each partner, and both partners are entitled to joint care during the first 10 days after birth. I'm now going to switch up the conversation a little bit and I'm going to talk about an entirely different law. And I do this because it's easy to think, yeah, of course the law needs a gender perspective when we're talking about something like paid parental leave and shared care between men and women. But what underpins all of my research is that every piece of legislation we enact must have a gender perspective. So I'm going to talk a little bit about modern slavery. So this is from the cover of my 2015-2016 book, Sex, Slavery and the Trafficked Woman. Myths and Misconceptions about Trafficking and its Victims. So my book is about trying to dispel myths about slavery. Because slavery at the end of the day is about migration gone wrong. When workers are not paid or underpaid or face conditions vastly different from what they agree. It's about when what might have begun as a highly voluntary situation ends up in very, very involuntary conditions. So in 2018, Australia enacted the Modern Slavery Act. It's actually a really terrible name for a law that's really trying to reduce or eradicate, ideally, exploitation in supply chains. So you have parent companies that say, okay, we can see what's happening in our own parent company, but we can't possibly know what's happening in the supply chain. And the Modern Slavery Act says, well, actually, you're not, you you can't get away with that anymore. You're required to know by conducting due diligence and finding out, is there exploitation in my supply chain? Now, supply chain exploitation is highly gendered, and I'll explain what I mean by that. This new law regulates businesses, garment sector businesses, like ASOS, Mighty Good Group, Outland Denim, Marks & Spencer, all of which have registered companies in Australia. Now, we know women dominate the garment sector in countries like Cambodia and Bangladesh, and we know men dominate certain sectors like fishing, and construction. So you would think that Australia's Modern Slavery Act would adopt a gender perspective, but it's entirely gender neutral, what I actually call gender blind. It doesn't require companies to conduct gender sensitive due diligence, which is really just a fancy way of saying, finding out whether men and women experience exploitation in similar or dissimilar ways. It doesn't note the higher vulnerability facing women to sexual harassment in the workplace, and barriers to union representation and union leadership, which we know is a problem in these countries. So while it requires companies to report on potential exploitation, it doesn't actually require them to find out who is at risk. Men? Women? People of a particular age or country of origin? Because it doesn't require them to disaggregate at all. So on the one hand, we have laws like the Modern Slavery Act that ignore gender altogether, and we have laws like the Paid Parental Leave which reinforce gender stereotypes. And so the obvious question we need to be asking ourselves is, what can we do about it? How do we enact legislation that works for women? Now, this question prompted me to develop the Gender Legislative Index in the first place. So I referred to my evaluation of the Paid Parental Leave Act before. Well, 134 laws have been evaluated from four countries, Australia and three countries in Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia and Sri Lanka. And if you're interested in knowing why I picked those three countries, well, you can join me another day when I talk about my upcoming book, The Woman President. In the Gender Legislative Index, each law has been evaluated by two evaluators, sometimes three and at times four. But a machine learning algorithm generates an overall score for each law. But I don't want to talk about the mechanics of the index. It's a publicly available resource and you can check it out in your own time. Genderlawindex.org. But one thing people often ask me is do we have good laws, do we know what it takes to shift our legislation in the right direction? And we do. And I'll offer you some examples. In the area of family law, Australia has been enacting laws that promote shared caring after separation. We've also tried, although just looking at the news you would tragically know, really unacceptably, in trying to balance the promotion of shared care with the risks that some women and their children face of domestic violence after separation. To offer another example in the area of taxation, which is an area of law that we rarely look at from a gender perspective, Australia's been trying to eradicate dependent spouse tax exemptions. Now these are the kind of exemptions that often encourage one woman, one spouse, particularly, typically, typically the woman, to return to work at part-time rates. And so by eradicating these dependent spouse tax exemptions, we may see women with greater financial security and greater superannuation. And so we do know what it takes to move in the right direction. But in the time I have remaining, I just want to focus on one particular aspect of the Gender Legislative Index. So I've shared my views on how we need to get away from laws that reinforce gender stereotypes, and we need to get away from gender-blind laws that ignore the relevance of gender altogether. Well, the Gender Legislative Index takes it one step further because it offers seven questions that I believe are key to the drafting of every piece of legislation. But it's not just me who thinks so. These seven questions come from international law, or specifically the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, a human rights treaty that Australia signed up to back in 1983. And while the grit and grime of New York seems very far away from us now, in my view, failure to implement international law is one of the reasons why our laws are not working as well as they should in advancing women's rights in this country. Not to mention Australia's very own Natasha Stott Despoys was just elected to sit on the committee that monitors that human rights treaty, the second ever Australian woman to be in such a position. So I combed through international law and categorised and subcategorized to come up with the seven questions that I believe are key to the drafting of every law. But it's not that these questions are only relevant to the law, and I hope you can see their value because they really are about women's everyday lives and the discrimination and barriers women face. It's also not about suggesting that these questions are not relevant for men or for people who don't identify as men or women. It's about asking who in our society is discriminated against and what the law can do to fix this. It's about looking at years or decades of discrimination against women and asking whether the law can be rewritten differently to correct that inequality. It's about acknowledging gender-specific barriers facing some and gender-specific opportunities only available to others, and seeing if the law can level the playing field. So these are those seven questions. Does the law guarantee access to non-discriminatory and accessible, affordable, acceptable services? Does the law guarantee access to information and education, or information and education about the issue being regulated? Does the law guarantee non-coerced and informed decision-making and protect women's confidentiality? Think here about the case a few weeks ago where a woman received a government payout after a government agency released her new address to a former spouse against whom she had a protection order. Does the law promote equality between men and women? Now, think here about the Paid Parental Leave Act, which I mentioned before promotes equality between men and women, but does it actually do that in practice? Does the law protect women from situations of vulnerability linked to their gender? Now, think here about their recent research, which is showing how often Indigenous women are identified as the perpetrators of domestic violence when they are, in fact, the victims. When things go wrong, does the law guarantee access to justice, And does the law finally promote the comprehensive monitoring of the situation facing women? Do we actually collect data to find out how men and women experience the law? So these are the seven questions that I believe are essential for every legal drafter sitting down and writing laws for our country. Now, many of you work with women in your communities, and some of you might be thinking, oh, gender responsive legislation, I never thought about the law this way, that's really interesting. But I would love for you to find a way to make these seven questions relevant to your everyday lives. And you know your work far better than me and you'll come up with far more innovative solutions. But I just want to offer some suggestions for those of you who are thinking right now, well, what can I do? And the first thing to say is, join the rallying cry. Laws are introduced into parliament by the people we vote for. Around 200 bills are introduced into parliament every year, 95% in the House of Representatives. The same House of Representatives, where less than one in three are women. So it's time to start asking more of the members who represent us to do their part in correcting gender inequality. The very same Paid Parental Leave Act I mentioned before, last year a bill was introduced into the Senate to allow fathers to be income tested as well. It was knocked back by the government and One Nation. We need to ask the people who represent us to start doing more to correct years of discrimination and not be afraid to join us when we march on the streets. These questions are also about rethinking what it is we do. They may help you evaluate how you work in your communities. So when you hold community events, are women and men equally invited? Of course they all have access to the space, but when do you hold your meetings? Are meetings held at night when a woman might be more likely to be a carer? If a woman turns up with children, does she have a safe space to actively, to leave her children so she can actively participate? Do you have safe spaces for breastfeeding? When you collect community data on whom you work with in your communities, do you collect data on the men and women you help, so you know whether you're reaching the most marginalised and excluded? Indigenous women, migrant women, women living with disabilities, So hopefully these seven questions help you to think about how you might do things differently when you walk out the door at the end of today. Australian women have fought for equality for over 100 years. And the last few months have showed how hard we can fight. We've shaken up the system. Change is in the air. But we cannot wait for the dust to settle. I've offered a solution that I genuinely believe will work that it requires a rethink from anyone involved in lawmaking, but that's the kind of deep-seated change that I genuinely believe is necessary. Because at the current state of progress, I guarantee if we follow the status quo, the change will not be big enough or come at a fast enough rate. At the current rate, we already have to wait 100 years. I will not be around. You will not be around. And surely we want to be around to see this. So the change has to happen now. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit ourcommunity.com.au forward slash CIC.